Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. Why is America like this? Leonard Pitts Jr. built a reputation by exploring this question over the last 31 years as a syndicated columnist. Twice a week at the Miami Herald, he forced us to pay attention with thoughtful writing on some of the most delicate and complex subjects. He challenged us to talk fearlessly about race, even when he was receiving death threats. He showed us really the courage it takes to talk about class and poverty. He even asked once in a column, Mr. President, just who the hell do you think you are? At the end of the year, Leonard is retiring from Daily Columns. But don't worry, the voice that won him a Pulitzer Prize, it isn't going away. He's graduating from what he calls the second best job in the world, being a columnist, to his dream job, full-time author. Today, we'll talk about the three devastating murders that shaped his youth and his worldview. And you'll hear how he nearly ended up writing comics for Marvel. But we'll start by addressing what may be his most controversial stance for a Miami writer. You know, I think it's important to get your most controversial position out of the way and addressed immediately. Are we going to talk about the fact that I wasn't a Michael Bolton fan as a music critic? or No, we're going to talk about the fact that you're a Lakers fan. Oh, that... <laughs> I'm sorry, Heat Nation. If it, if it means anything, you know, if I had to have a secondary team, the Heat would be, you know, my, you know, obviously Miami is my second, you know, second home. But come on, I, I grew up the first 34 years of my life in Southern California. All right, so I'm going to ask you yeah. to explain yourself, sir. Okay. Uh, so you you obviously you grew up in Southern California, right. uh, and you grew up at a time uh, in America where uh, you wrote at one point, you wake up to you walk around with mm. whites only signs. In yeah, the not, world. not quite that. Yeah, I, I came into the world in '57, and in California, I don't remember seeing so much of that. It's it's kind of interesting what you find out was going on in the world unknown to you as a child, just sort of growing up in your childish world. But I, I came into the world uh, as the uh, kids uh, at uh, at Little Rock were trying to uh, were trying to attend uh, public high school, Central High School. I came into the world right in that period. I came into the world as Sputnik was, uh, I think, uh, still in the sky, and and there were troops in Little Rock to take little black kids to uh, to 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 high school. I mean, what a time to uh, what an impressionable time for a person growing yeah. up. I mean, all these things affect who we are and how we right. see the world. And and I'm I'm really curious. I mean, I know this is something you probably thought about, but how does growing up in that time where these world these major world events, these major American events, are happening? How does that affect, start to affect your worldview, do you think? Well, actually, I, I don't think, I wish I'd paid more attention, uh, to tell you the honest <laughs> to God's truth. I, I grew up, I, I came of age during the 60s, and I actually remember so little of that. And I think part of it was because I was just a childish kid with not a lot of interest in it. And I think there may have been some sheltering by my mom going on. But for instance, I have just vague impressionistic memories of when John Kennedy was killed. Uh, when Martin Luther King was killed, um, there used to be this family, this family of singers called the King family, and they were inc this incredibly white-bred group of singers. And because this was a day before, with only three networks, and before there was uh, even VCR, much less you know TiVo or DVR, uh, when they when when they were on television, and my dad wanted to watch this, that meant we all had to watch this. So when I heard that a Martin Luther King had been killed, I thought it was one of them, and I was actually pretty pleased. <laughs> <laughs> to tell you the honest to God truth, and 
You know? Oh God, less of these people. Yeah, exactly, less <laughs> of these people. And my, I remember my dad uh, ordering me out of the room in in no uncertain terms because he and my mom were like, you know, torn up. And I'm like, why? What? What? What's What's the big deal? Uh, so I, I have very, very, you know, few memories. The one memory I do have, I do remember when Bobby Kennedy was killed because I had just gone to bed, and I and and I heard my mom start screaming. And oh of course, God. this is two months after. Uh, Two months after Martin and five years after uh, John and uh, three years after Malcolm. So, you know, it's like uh, there's just, just a scream of not again, not again. And I rush out to the room and uh, and find her watching television and, you know, crying. And and I remember the news reports and they showed where the where the bullet had entered his, his, his skull. And I remember for some reason hearing, and, you know, this is how you process things as a child. I remember hearing that. He was a dad and that he had, I think it was 10 children and, and the 11th on the way, if I recall correctly. And that's how I processed it. These 10 kids like me, you know, wow. their daddy was, was, was stricken. And that, that's always how I, how I remembered processing it. And, and, you know, he lingered for a day. And I remember, you know, praying that, you know, there's going to be a miracle and he's going to be okay. And, of course, you know, there wasn't and he wasn't. What a what a way for a child to kind of uh, yeah. absorb and process in, in, in that information, making it so personal to you. Yeah, yeah, it it it, it really was. And the, the the weird thing, and this is probably too much information and more more morbid than you want, but it is the truth. I remember that after for years after that, I had this this morbid terror of of dying by by a head wound by bullet wound because three of those men had died like that and it just seemed to me you know John Kennedy Martin Luther King and uh, Bobby Kennedy and they just seemed to me such a terrible way to 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 die to die basically before you even know you know what's 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 happened to you you think about yeah. the the, the yeah. trauma that that kids, yeah. that ki- even especially kids of your generation yeah. lived through in that period. Yeah, so that's the trauma that I had for for years after after um, after Bobby Kennedy died. Uh, you know that I just you know okay I know I've got to die, but <laughs> let me not die like like that. Right. You know. Now you store that kind of back in your mind, right. way back in your brain, and I imagine it's a thing that then as you become a more conscious person moving right. about the world you start to reconsider. It kind of surprises you as you start thinking about these topics again and, and you start uh, framing your, your view of the world. Yeah, I, I don't think I really became so much a, you know politically aware probably until the early, till, till the 70s, till, till uh, Watergate. Uh, you know, Watergate was happening as I was, uh, as I was in college and I was entering college and all of the, you know, I, I entered college uh, early, so the the kids that I was around were a little bit older than I was, and I think that pulled me, you know, pulled me up just in terms of political awareness. Because again, I'm and, sorry, and people should know that you yeah. entered college at the, fifteen, at the ripe age of fifteen. <laughs> yeah, I, was in, I started at fifteen. You went to uh, Southern Cal, yeah, University of Southern California, yeah. Uh, I had a good buddy who went mm-hmm. in at sixteen, okay. and he said it was a real culture shock to be around nineteen-year-olds who yeah. were freshmen, you know, eighteen and nineteen-year-olds. How did how did that affect you? Same difference. Uh, I I started at, f- at fifteen, uh, turned sixteen the next uh, month. I started in uh, September, and you know, birthday was the next month. But it was really, you know, it, when you get older, uh, a two or three year age gap is not a big deal, <laughs> you know. But in those ages, those years where you're still developing, it's a huge deal. And I remember, you know, and then you add the the race thing on top of it. You know, I was I was the first black kid a lot of these kids had seen. You know, and wow. they were the first white kids that I'd ever been in uh, close proximity to. So there were, there were, you know, there were all kinds of culture shock. And the the AIDS thing, uh, 
I, I, I distinctly remember, you know, the difficulty of trying to get a date. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you couldn't, couldn't date an 18-year-old. Uh, that was like against the law. You exactly. <laughs> I'm 15 years old. The youngest, you know, young ladies there are like 18. And again, it's a three-year, two or three-year age gap. But, you know, I don't have a car. We're riding the bus. You know, <laughs> it's just not a good look, oh. you know, for trying for trying to get any any feminine attention. So, you know, it wasn't good there. You were not balling as the I was saying. not. I gave me plenty of time to study. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of time to study. We'll put it like that. How did your parents feel about that, about you starting so young, uh, going to school so young? Uh, my dad was, was sick right then. He was, that was, uh, he was in his last illness before he died. My mom was extraordinarily proud. She always was. Uh-huh. I mean, she was, you know, she was that quintessential mom with the, with the chest, you know, poked out at, at all the things that her son did. So This is my yeah, son, Leonard. This is my son. I remember when I was 19 and I just started writing. Uh, actually, I was probably a little older than that, probably 20 or 21, but I, I was writing for uh, – for an entertainment magazine, a teeny bopper magazine, and I remember we were in a supermarket, and Mom looked at a copy of the magazine on the on the uh, checkout stand uh, on the way out of the store, and she says in a voice loud enough for like the next three rows to hear, "Do you have anything in this copy of the magazine?" "No, Mom. I d- Are you sure you didn't write an article in this?" "No, Mom. No, there's nothing of mine." "Are you sure that?" Yeah, like, "Okay, Mom. Now everybody knows that, you know, <laughs> that I that I po- interview pop stars for this magazine." But she was making sure, you know, in, you were, her, in her subtle way. It was very much you were like almost famous, like that movie almost basically. Famous ba- oh yeah, that that movie rings rings very true for me. Except I I never ran away with it with a rock band, but. You know, from the time I was eighteen, you know, I was I was hanging out backstage with people that I I, I had idolized for years. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned your dad. Yeah. Um, he was. Did he die young? Yeah, he died. He was fifty-two. I got to remember. The, yeah, he died of, at fifty-two of, of uh, throat cancer. Wow. That, yeah. That must have been really uh, made a real. I, I I don't know how you how you kind of bounced back from that as a young. As a it young was boy. it was it was kind of difficult. You know, we'd we'd had a you know we'd had a difficult relationship, but you know, your dad's your dad. And uh, to lose him that young, you know, was 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 very hard. Uh, yeah. And you know, it also, you know, I felt more obligated to try to be as much of a help as I could to my mom. At the same time, because now suddenly she's struggling, you know, without uh, without you know without her husband. So it was a difficult time. Were you? Uh, what is your family like? Are, do you have brothers and sisters? I have two sisters and a brother. I'm the oldest. And you're the oldest. Yes. Oh, so that. I, that, you know, you're a young man, mm-hmm. and kind of being like the man of the house. That's such a we. We always hear people say, "Oh, you're the man of the house now." And when, then, when you step back and look at it, we're asking this 17 year old kid, yeah. "Have you?" First year, I was first year of school. I was living on campus, which because that was part of the program that had put me into college. And then the, the after that, I came back home, and I remember, you know, tr- uh, having to help. I remember specifically helping mom uh, do Christmas for the younger kids one time. Because you know there were you know the funds were a little bit uh, a little bit stretched. I remember helping her do that with that with that Tiger Beat money or <laughs> with that <laughs> actually it was right on magazine. But right yeah, <laughs> I, I think I re- remember reading that uh, in mm-hmm. your bio that you knew that you wanted to write very young, like as young as f- as five. I, don't I, know if I you always say stretching. I knew that I was a writer at five. How did you know at five? I just knew that this just seemed like the most the the best thing in the world to be able to to you know put words together and get and get paid for it. I still can't. Sometimes I still can't believe that you get paid for this. It is kind of a it, we are living the the we're living the dream, man. Yeah, I mean, for, you know, first you know I was I was uh, putting words down and then putting words down after listening to music. <laughs> Which was like, you know, is this legal? Is this actually a job? Is somebody going to come after me for this? So, yeah, but when I was five years old, I, I had the advantage of having been, you know, for 
21 months the only child until my sister came along and ruined the deal. Uh, but mom, you know, I, I was, I got all that, that first child attention. So mm-hmm. when I went to school, when I started school at age five, I already knew my alphabet. I already knew the stuff that the other kids were going to start to learn. I think that, that gave me a great advantage because I, I went in, you know, already having a basic grasp of English. And so by the time I'm two years, I'm in second grade, I'm writing stories uh, and the deal in, in the second grade at Utah Street School in, in, in Los Angeles was that uh, uh, if the class had behaved, uh, Leonard could read one of his stories at the end of class. And this wasn't punishment. This was considered... Yeah, I know. That was a treat for yeah, them. I think back on it now, and I'm like, that, where, am I sure that wasn't punishment? But actually, no, it wasn't considered punishment. It's like, you know, no, this is this is the treat. Right. You know, so everybody behave, you know, sit like this with your with your hands on your on the desk and st- straight up. And, and, and Leonard I, will tell us a story. And Leonard will tell us a story. So, yeah, I, I, when I was in fifth or sixth grade, we had a the principal, and the poor lady had the most unfortunate name for an educator in, in history. Her name was G. Renee Boring. <laughs> yeah. But, well, listen, I had a priest in yeah. Catholic school growing up. His name was Father Fink. Oh, God. How'd you like to, how'd you like to give confession <laughs> to that guy? Father right? Fink, yeah. yeah. But uh, 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 Principal Boring uh, allowed me to use their. I gotta, I gotta laugh at that. Yeah, I know. I feel, I feel for the lady every time I call her name. But she allowed me to use their, their typewriters and in in the office after school and uh, the mimeograph machines, which for those those of you who are young, <laughs> predated uh, Xerox machines. By the used, smell of the mimeograph. Yeah, the mimeograph. Right? There you go. You yes, used to mimeograph kind of my chemical. stories and stuff. Yeah. Oh, so. that's amazing. Yes. Do you remember any of those stories or what they were about? Uh, mostly superhero stories starring myself. Uh, <laughs> the, the earliest were superhero stories starring myself, and then I branched out and created other superhero characters. I, as, I, as you probably also read, Stan Lee was a huge influence on me. So you know, I, I, the, the first things that I that I wrote were emulating him, minus a lot of the a lot of the drawing. I was just I was almost all text. I, I'd write the covers, you know, I draw covers, but inside was all text. Wow, it, it it actually reminds me of like yeah. a, you know a person who crosses uh, mm-hmm. the different genres. I'm thinking yeah. of like Ta-Nehisi Coates, yeah. you know who who helped write Black Panther. If I'm not, he mistaken. wrote Black Panther right. for for a number of years. Yeah, he he's like I, he, he's like me, or I'm like him. But, uh, you know, he, he's a as he calls himself a comics head. You know, oh, and funny. and I and I am that too. I, I actually uh, submitted some stuff to Marvel Comics once. Did you? Yeah, got an got an encouraging turn down. Said you know, not not exactly what we're looking for, but you know, keep trying, good. But I never followed through on it because uh, you know I was busy doing the Miami Herald at the time. Right. Yeah. Oh, so you were already further along. In your oh yeah, career when this you were doing was that. in the '90s, I guess. I think maybe I wasn't at the Herald yet. I'm maybe I'm. I'm you know, putting the things together, but I was I was pretty well along in my career, and uh, I didn't follow through with it because I was you know doing other stuff. So you you mentioned the Herald. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are now retiring after thirty one years. Yes, sir. At the Herald, and uh, and and it's funny because you you talk about this growing up in Southern Cal. Mm-hmm. I know that you've lived in Maryland for. I've lived in Maryland since ninety five January. So, so now you got, now you got to give me your Miami credentials, like. <laughs> give me, give me the Miami credentials. Like, what, what is it that uh, ties you to Miami that makes you, you know, feel like you're connected to this community or have been connected to it all these years? Oh, geez, I got so many friends in Miami. I don't know <laughs> if that counts. We were uh, at the retirement party. We were uh, hanging out with friends that we've known since Hurricane Andrew. The people that tried to, um, you know, that tried to uh, uh, um, prepare our home. We were out of town. 
when the hurricane hit and the, the folks had tried to, 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 to barricade our home from the storm, not that it worked. See, you, you, know. you have, that is, that's how you name yourself like Mr. Miami's. I you have, have a, Andrew Craig. You have an Andrew story. Yes. Once you have an Andrew story. Yes. You have Miami cred. I, uh, yeah, thank you. Well, I have Andrew cred. And, and you know, we talked about basketball a, uh, a little while ago. I remember when Ronnie Cycli was the... Uh, First the, overall pick <laughs> yeah, of the exactly. Miami Heat. Yeah, the star of the Miami Heat. Yes, sir. Yeah, so I, I, I can go back a little bit. Okay. that that t- Talk to me about your Andrew story because mm-hmm. I know it, it wasn't just like, oh, I lost a shingle on my house. You, we lost house. the whole house. Um, and it was really weird. You know, again, we'd lived here for a year at that time, and I really had no sense of what a hurricane is. Hmm. Uh, I figured it's gonna be it's gonna be blustery. It's gonna be a lot of wind and rain, and it's gonna be really scary. And the lights may go out, but it'll probably it'll be fun too in that scary sort of way. Yeah. So you know, we're on a road trip at the time. We are. Uh, we dro- we drove up from here, went to Atlanta, then to D.C., just, you know, doing a family vacation for a week. And this is 1992. Right. So it's still possible to be out of touch with the world. There's no Internet. <laughs> there's no anything. So we didn't know that for that entire week a storm is barreling down on, on South Florida. And the night you were, before— You were just having a family we vacation. We were just having fun. And the night before, I, I turned on the TV news for, like, the first time in days at, at some motel in Savannah, Georgia. And I see, oh, a storm is coming to Miami. The next day from Daytona Beach, we call our neighbors, and uh, our neighbors say, stay where you are. <laughs> Don't oh, come. Stay where you are. You're, you're good right where you are. And we're like, oh, no, it'll probably be fine. You know, let's let's go on home. How bad can it be? Oh, man, you still didn't. Like, still, like God sent a lifeboat, God sent a helicopter. You, you know that old listen. line, God takes care of babies and fools? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we had a car full of babies and we were the fools. But yeah, we drove south and it began to hit me when you when we were on the turnpike. And I swear going south, you could have shot a cannon, you know, and, and hit nothing. Right. You know, we had the whole turnpike to ourselves. Coming north, there's like just this wall of white lights. And it's like, we may have made a mistake here. Huh. Huh. Yeah, it's exactly. like The Walking Dead. Maybe yeah. we did. Maybe we, we did something we, wrong here. Yeah, we pulled into uh, you know into the house and we you know boarded up as best we can, which is not good at all. And you know we wrote it out. Uh, you know wrote wrote it out listening to here's my other Miami cred listening to Brian Norcross. Oh man, <laughs> the know? hero of Hurricane. The Andrew. hero of Hurricane Andrew. Listening to Brian Nor- and doing everything Brian Norcross says to the T. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Listening to him, uh, he was with uh, NBC. I want to yeah. say at the time. And, yeah. And he was like the voice in the dark that everybody yes. was listening to. Yeah, the, while, the while, while me and uh, my wife and five kids are huddled in the uh, master bedroom closet. Yes, sir. And how did you guys, when that when it passed, what was left of, were you guys safe or were you guys holding the door closed? We were okay. Half the half the roof was gone. Not the roof, not the half over where we were, thank God, but half of the roof was gone. We went out and there was like, you know, you could see skylight, uh, see sunlight through the uh, through the living room uh, where, the, where the roof had been and these big pink uh, wads of insulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, my older son, uh, oldest son, went out and cleared the uh, the uh, sewers because the the water on the street was backed up, you know, probably knee high. Oh boy! You know, so he went out and cleared the sewers so it could drain. You know, you know my wife had a. Uh, we had just bought this vintage. Um, I think it was a Mercedes. Somebody was selling a Mercedes, and it was a really nice older car. Needed some work, and we put it in the backyard. Just before we left, and it had a tree through it. Oh, <laughs> no! It was, it was, it was really, uh, it was really insane. You definitely got the Miami experience yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's that's for sure. That was syndicated columnist Leonard Pitts Jr. He's retiring from the Miami Herald after three decades. His last column will be published tomorrow, December fourteenth. Still to come, 
we get into the harsh realities of being a columnist and the responsibility and threats that come with it. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. We're talking with nationally syndicated columnist Leonard Pitts Jr., who is retiring after more than 30 years at the end of the month. His columns push us to have difficult conversations about race. But it was his start as a music critic that first let him comment on American culture. We'll get into that. But first, we talked about how the conversations around race are unique here in South Florida. You have been so great Mm. at centering conversations about race. Mm-hmm. In other words, when people kind of put up a blinder on one side and said, this is a this is a rail, this is a third rail I'm not right. going to touch. But you were very much like, I know I'm holding onto the rail and you're going to hold onto it with me <laughs> and we're all going to talk about this topic. Yeah. And I was and I was wondering, how does the conversation in Miami, how is that different uh, from other places when you have that conversation about race? I always tell people in other parts of the world that Miami is the future mm-hmm. and that if you, and if, and if you, and if we can, if Miami can get it together, and it's still an if, it's still a major if. If Miami can get it together, then there's hope. But I, but I always say that people discussing race need to take a closer look at, at at Miami, and I don't think they really they really do. In the rest of the country, race is a is a bi um, is a, is a, a bipolar discussion. Black, it's black and white, right? You know, yeah. and, that's so true. And that that that's the whole thing. And then you come down to Miami, and it's black and white. And then there's all then there's Hispanic, and but there's all these different flavors of Hispanic. Right. You know, the when colorism. My, yeah. Right. When when my kids got here, it took years for me to teach them that every person with a Spanish surname or a Spanish accent was not Mexican because we came from L.A. And right. that's oh, I met this Mexican kid. No, you probably didn't. <laughs> you probably met a Cuban kid or maybe an Argentinian kid or, yep. or whatever. So you know, there's there, there's all these different you know flavors of, of Hispanic, and there's all these different flavors of black, which don't always, um, you know, see themselves reflected in one another. You know, there's there's Haitian and Jamaican and, you know, there's Afro-Latino. There's and then there's, you know, African-American, you know, there's nationalism baked into the, yeah. some of those discussions. Of race yeah. So too. that so it, it's it's re, it's extraordinarily complex down here. And, uh, you know, I, I really I really think that this is a, is a laboratory for the for America's future, because this is this is what the country is in the process of becoming what Miami is now is what is what America is becoming, and so I really think that a lot more attention needs to be paid uh, to those dynamics in Miami, and frankly, Miami probably needs to pay a lot more attention to those di- to those dynamics in Miami. What What did you learn about um, the discussion of race once you you started to learn about these these very different layers of complexity? Like as you wrote and as you were writing columns, how did that how did that uh, add layers at to when you discuss the div- the diversity in Miami. It taught me not to take things for granted. Hmm. You know, it taught me not to. It taught me to appreciate the fact, you know, and I think I'd appreciated it before, but really to appreciate the complexity of these discussions. You know, I had a, I wrote two or three columns on uh, on George Zimmerman, and you know, is he white or not? <laughs> Oh, you know, and that was a fascinating discussion because one, the people who you know, I I, just, I defined him as that, and the people who were angry with me with that. I wrote several columns on George Zimmerman, and what was fascinating to me and the people that criticized me on that is that uh, they seem to assume that there is some sort of marker or some sort of series of things that you can check off and say, hmm, white, 
you know, right. or not white. Right. You know, and but the thing about race. A little, a little card that shows the yeah. gradients of color. But like, the thing about from? race is when you really dig down into it. If you stay on the surface, you're fine. But if you really dig down into it, you realize how, how stupid and how absurd it is. One of my favorite Herald pieces that I wrote is called Race is the Stupidest Idea in American History, <laughs> in, 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 in world history, because it is. Because once you start digging digging down into where it came from and what it is and the fact that it has existed, race as an idea has existed for, you know, only three or four centuries, you know, you really begin to understand, wow, this is really, this is just dumb. Yeah. This is, incre- this is incredibly dumb. And we, we it, it's real, quote unquote, because we have to acknowledge, we have to treat it as real and because it has real world impact on the way people live. Right. But it's not real in any intelligent um, uh, objective form. It just it just isn't there. We make it real because somebody's got to get over on somebody else. We make exactly <laughs> we make it real, you know, and 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 in that sense, yeah, you got to deal with it. But but yet and true, yet and still, it's it's not exact. It's not real, and that it's it's if you're a logical person and you try to and you try to deal with race from a logical point of view, at some point, it's going to make you crazy. You know, I'm curious because mm. you you mentioned. Um, how you started mm. commenting about music. Right. So music was an entry, was kind of feels, feels like it was for you, uh, like a first entryway into commenting about American society, right? Because yeah. so much is, uh, and, and you're specifically an, an R&B fan. Right. Which is, which is predominantly such a, such a black music, right. m- musical form. So I'm curious about how that kind of begins to shape the thought process of, of someone who becomes one of the, you know, really one of the best known well, social commentators. I, I think in terms of, when I, when I think about music, I, th- I think of music in terms of, you know, as a social artifact, I guess. I, and, and I think I always did. It was never, you know, I can describe, you know, it's got a good beat and you, and you can dance to it. I can, <laughs> I can do all of that and talk about chart positions and those things are important, but it's 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 more important or just as important to me and, and, and more interesting to me to talk about music as a social artifact. Motown was, was a musical movement, yes, but Motown was also a social movement. They were very conscious of that at the time. Oh, you right. know, if you talk to any of the surviving artists, they'll tell you how they were trained specifically to be able to walk and talk and present themselves in places, you know, the Copacabana, the the Carson show, the Johnny Carson show, wherever, where African-American artists had not been allowed before because they were drilled in the fact that you, when you go into these places, you're not simply representing yourself. You know, you're representing and and, and impacting the, the, the lives of, at that time, 20 million other people behind you. So that if Marvin Gaye goes on the Carson show and, and tells an off-color joke or does something stupid, well, it doesn't just, it, it's not just Marvin Gaye. It's Stevie Wonder. It's me. It's it's a lot of us who are going to pay for that. So you know, to me, music music has always had that capacity. Elton John with you know with with the um, AIDS fight. Music just just has this way of of inco- of encapsulating social fo- uh, foment, and I think it does it more. It, it has the, the ability to react more quickly than um, than movies and television. You know, to, to make a movie takes, what, two years, three years, whatever it is. Television shows a little bit faster, but you can, you know, you can have a song out tomorrow. Right. You know, Especially and, now. Yeah, it, yeah. it used to be, okay, it's going to take two weeks or a month to get this song to the street, which is still pretty fast, but now you can have a song out tomorrow. Could you have YouTube sensation uh, Leonard Pitts Jr. That's right not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to happen. Now, that, that becomes an entree mm-hmm. for you to, to write about other issues, I right. would imagine. So, at what point do you remember writing a column 
that was not about music mm -hmm. that you got like the first big reaction where you were thinking, whoa, I was, I didn't see that coming. I didn't expect that kind of reaction. Probably the column, um, probably the LA riots column. Oh, okay. Tell me about that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, well, the LA riots when I, it, it it struck me, you know, not just because okay, here's a you know here's a city that's burning, but the riots started, as I recall, at Florence and Normandy. Put me in the year. That's yeah. This is 1991. Okay. The uh, the Rodney King decision, I believe it is, uh, and I'm if I recall correctly, the riots were 90 were 91. If they if they weren't 91, they were 92. But I'm pretty sure they were 91. And basically, the the, yeah. the the officers that beat Rodney King right. are put on trial, right. and they are found not guilty. Yeah, they are acquitted by by a jury in Simi Valley, which is you know predominantly white, uh, middle class area, uh, far from you know from from where Rodney King is from. We'll put it like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think what struck me is that where the riots started, Florence and Nor if I if I'm recalling correctly, Florence and Normandy was a uh, was an intersection that I knew. <laughs> Oh wow! You know, they had grown. Yeah, because I, 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 again, I grew up in L.A. I grew up in South L.A. Right. So, the, and I was, I had only been in Miami for at that point a few months. I don't even think a year. So there's just something about seeing, and I think I've mentioned this in that column, places that you know and places that you've been in a helicopter shot on television, in flames. Wow. You know, places that you've walked to. That you know, that just really. You that's know, your hometown. Yeah, that's my hometown. Not just my hometown. That's my neighborhood. Right. <laughs> that's not. That's my neighborhood, and it's on fire. And so it, it just really impacted me, and just you know, combined with the injustice of those officers uh, getting off for uh, for almost killing Rodney King, just really inspired uh, some anger in me. And uh, I don't know whose idea it was that I write something. I don't know if it was mine or my editor's, but I ended up writing something, and you know, that's kind of. The first one of the first times that I uh, took off from just being the music critic and was able to write about something that hadn't had no beat and and no no melody or rhythm behind it. And you and you tapped into this personal yeah. experience, into this, into the way that it mm -hmm. affected you. What yeah. what has to change in you to be able to to say, you know what, I'm going to put on some armor and and talk about these things. The, the thing that I've always felt is that. You know, when, when you are given the privilege, and, and that's it, precisely what it is, is the privilege of a podium, yeah. you know, from which to, 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 to spout your opinion. Because let's face it, everybody has an opinion. Every like, Opinions are like belly buttons. Everybody's got one. But the difference is that a very few of us get paid to spout our opinions. And it's another one of those things where you say, how is this even legal? Okay, <laughs> I'm stealing money. Yeah, but if but if you're going to be given that privilege, then I don't think that you that you waste it by, you know, not saying things that are important, not saying things that 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 you feel need to be said. Uh, you know, to me, that's just that's just spitting in the eye of it. Plus, it's you know, frankly, it's not it's not good journalism. You know, it, it, we can all everybody can say or anybody can write. I like mom got an apple pie. You know, yeah. Yeah, but but when it comes time to say some, to have some of those harder discussions, you know, if you're not ready to to do that and to take whatever comes, then uh, then you're probably in 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 the wrong profession. You know, my my favorite the the worst thing for a columnist is not, you know, people people think that you know having a getting a a, a good response, a favorable response, is the best thing. You can, yeah, that that that's nice. I like getting a favorable response. Or hate mail is the worst thing you can get. But the the worst thing you can get is no response. Oof, that's the, the worst thing you can get is is utter indifference. Oh yeah. You know, if if people can be in, if people can read what you've written and not love it or hate it or want to talk back to it, you know, then you've probably not done anything worth talking about. Was there a time when you were ready to hit the button on a column? 
and you were anxious about it, mm. what kind of reception is going to get? Did I make my point, and were you were you nervous at any point with writing? A lot of times. Years? That happens a lot of times, and what I've discovered over the years is that the columns that I'm have been most concerned about and the columns where I've said to myself, are you really sure you want to jump out on this limb? Are you, can you support this? Is this, those have been the columns that had the greatest impact almost universally. The columns that, that, that I wasn't sure about have been the columns that people have, that have been, have responded to the, the best and have been the most powerful and the most impactful for people. Can you remember what, even one in specific that you Not, thought that? No, I can't remember a specific one, but I, I definitely remember that, that as a pattern. It's when you're going to stand out on a limb, like when you're going to go yeah. out on, on an island, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Do I really want to say this? <laughs> were you ever afraid? Like after a column is published, were you ever afraid? No. The one time that there was any concern was in 07 when we had the um, the uh, the neo-Nazis and the, and, and the death threats and all that and all that stuff. There was uh, just a recap. Uh, yeah. I, I want to say that you wrote about uh, a white couple who'd been killed. He's and, done his homework. Yeah. I wrote about a white couple who had been killed and, and, and these neo-Nazis got hold of it and were calling it genocide. And, you know, it was a tragedy and it was, you know, it was a, you know they'd been killed by, I think, four uh, black people, you know. And, and, and they wanted to turn, they wanted to use that to, to claim that, that this, that this was, was a race war. Gen, yeah, race war and active genocide. You know, about the four, the four, the four black folks that did it, if, if they did it, throw them under the jailhouse. I mean, I really have no... no I remember you writing those yeah, words exactly. I have no affinity for them, but the, but the whole idea that this was genocide just, you know, was just insane and, 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 and an insult to those whose people have suffered genocide, frankly. Genocide is not four people being, uh, two people being murdered by a gang of thugs. You know, genocide is something a little bit more than that. And so, you know, I, I wrote that in a column, and uh, the neo-Nazis were, were displeased and, you know, came after me. And I wasn't so much worried, you know, you always, I guess you always think yourself in, invincible. I wasn't so much worried for me, but I was worried for my kids and my wife. Of course. You know, that, that's who I was concerned about. So I remember the morning that that, that, that broke, and then we started getting those responses. Uh, we went to the kids' schools to, make, to let the, the educators know this is going on if anybody shows up, you know, for one of my looking for one of my kids, you know, make sure that you, you know, keep them away and went to the post office and alerted them and Wait, how did that you know, how did that manifest itself? Like did you get phone calls? We got a phone you? call from uh some guy uh who uh claimed he was the head Nazi and asked, told my wife he was the head, <laughs> the he's, he's the head Nazi and wants to talk to me and it's like, you know, I'm sorry, I don't know how it is at most people's houses, but when you call my house and you say I'm the head Nazi, can I speak to Leonard? You're going <laughs> to <laughs> You're not going to get a friendly response, and she gave him an unfriendly response, and then he, uh, the next day on his, you know, uh, I don't, this is pre-social media, I think, or at least pre the, you know, big social media, uh, he posted on his website, you know, the uh, address and one of the phone numbers to the house, you know, so it's like this sudden feeling of of exposure, Oof. yeah, and it 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 you know, so that was really kind of a scary thing. Did you have a moment where? Was it that one or any other one where you really thought, is this worth it? Like you look at your paycheck, and you say, <laughs> is this worth it? No, what? I mean I never, I never had a moment of wanting to leave the job. Uh, like didn't submit that. anything to Marvel after no, that. Like, no, no, I didn't. I didn't go back to Marvel and say, give me Spider Man, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I never had to, never had the feeling of wanting to stop doing the job because I wouldn't want anybody. I, I just can't see somebody pushing me off of not saying what needs to be said. But I do think that it's contributed to one of the reasons that I'm, you know, kind of happy to be retiring now. I tell people that I'm just emotionally exhausted, and that's part, you know, that's part of it, just a sense of, okay, I've done this enough. 
You know, I've dealt I've dealt with this enough. I've I've said enough. I've got nothing more to say, and I don't feel like dealing anymore with you know with this kind of foolishness because it's you know there's a, there's other things I want to do. Yeah, and I, it's time. Those words really struck me when mm. I read uh, mm. your uh, someone had written a story mm. uh, about you retiring mm. that you were emotionally exhausted. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people feel that way when yeah. they're talking about race and politics uh, in our country in the yeah. current in the current climate um, and so was that something you were building towards like feeling like it I was, felt it for a while yeah. I felt it coming for a while uh, it's uh, you know it's funny I, the, the, I've noticed over the because I was originally going to retire last year and then I decided I'd hold in you know hang out for another year uh, but I've noticed the columns are getting harder to write you know Ooh. yeah in what it, way how does that how does that manifest itself just you know, you're you're fighting with the words to make them you know to make them make sense and to figure out okay what is it I'm trying to say here, and you know to structure the piece just just the whole you know the minutia of of, of writing it just you know, oh, yeah. I mean previously you know you you'd have I'm hitting the mic again previously you'd have you know good days bad days writing you'd have you know this column was really took me a lot of work but this column just you know fell out of the sky on me. This, uh-huh. you know, this column came, and, and I'm having a lot fewer columns that just sort of fall out of the sky and a lot more columns where it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're you, you, have you seen, you know, in The Simpsons where Homer's wrestling and have, having to strangle Bart, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of how columns, you know, a lot more columns feel that way. It's like, you're going to be, you, I'm, you, you know, like, you, you little, you little you're you. going to get on that page and you're going to behave yourself, you know? <laughs> That's how structuring, not every column, but that's how structuring a lot of columns has begun to feel. Uh, over the last, I don't know, year, two years or whatever, it's like, you know, why won't you just, look, noun, verb, <laughs> you know, modifier, why don't you guys lay down there and, and behave and, 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 and say what I want you to say? And just, you know, that, that struggle tells me that, you know, it's, it's, it's time to hang them up. That was syndicated columnist Leonard Pitts, Jr., he joined us just before he begins his retirement and starts a new full-time career as an author. Still to come, he's written controversial column after controversial column. Is there any he would take back? His answer will surprise you. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. We spent the hour speaking with Leonard Pitts Jr., one of America's most prominent nationally syndicated columnists. He's retiring from the Miami Herald at the end of the month after more than 30 years. If you missed any part of this conversation, it's available on our podcast. Just search for Sundial wherever you get your podcast. I asked him about the single column that stands out in his mind and about the ones he wishes he could do over. Is there a column that you wrote that you cherish maybe mm-hmm. something that you know it didn't win an award it didn't uh, didn't resonate from right. you know that in a way that you would hope but that you personally kind of hold on to and said this was a piece that I was really proud of and a thing that or, or a thing that I wrote about that really was important to me yeah there's a few of those uh, the one that I wrote on the fourth anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing um, you know I uh, I really uh, I really like you know what? Uh, what struck you about uh, wanting to write about that? In, in, in it's not, not so much even wanting to. I just happened to be in Oklahoma City uh, near the fourth anniversary. I was giving a speech there. Oh, okay. And so I went to the monument, and I was moved to write about it. Um, and uh, I just liked the way the language fell in that in that piece. It just felt, you know, the the opposite of of having to strangle a column to get it to behave. It just sort of 
you know, came and, and, and flowed and just, you know, and did what you'd wanted to do. It just it just felt like it was just it, it just it just flowed, I guess. I can't I can't come up with a better word than that. It just flowed out. It's one of those where you're in the right place yeah. to be inspired yeah. to, to say something meaningful. Yeah. I always tell people sometimes, you know, every once in a while, maybe twice a year, you know, it's not, you know, the ceiling opens up and a shaft of light comes down and God says, you you type, I'll dictate. You know, you ever had that? You ever been oh, there? Yeah. yeah you, okay. This the angels, this, the, the yeah, muse, the, the angels, and the angels are singing around you, and you're just, oh yeah, this is so good. You know, <laughs> usually, usually it's it's somewhere between what I just described, the, the the shaft of light, and trying to strangle Bart Simpson. Usually, it's somewhere in between that. But this particular moment, that particular column was was the shaft of light. It's like, oh yeah, oh oh, this is great. You know, and it just just came right out. I'm curious because I. I wonder in the course of a career whether you look back and you say, like like a pitcher who mm-hmm. who kind of grooves a fastball. Right. Is there one that I would have back? There's a few that I have. I'd have yeah. I've been looking at some of the older ones, um, and uh, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, people people complain about how you know grumpy I am. There's some columns where I wish I'd been a little grumpier. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know. So it's not like I went too far. It's no, I didn't go far enough. I didn't enough. go far enough. I was a little too earnest there. I, I you know j- just know just reading the column and knowing what happened in the world afterward or how the how things went afterward. It's like yeah, I wish I'd been a little tougher minded there. Oh, is there you is know? there anything that stands out right in your mind when you when you no? Think it's about just that? I've been looking at old columns uh, last you know I guess nostalgically the last few uh, few days and saying ah yeah yeah. Shouldn't have done that one, you know. Could have taken that one back. And that speaks to maturity, yeah. right? Like as you, you change. get more comfortable in your voice, yeah. and as the world changes you, yeah. as you move throughout the world. Yeah, I, I think I think that's it exactly. There, there's stuff that I wrote that just at, from from a writer's point of view, there's stuff that I did that I wouldn't want to do anymore, that I wouldn't do anymore. Like, and then, no, <laughs> just word choice, word oh. use, you know, being being cutesy stuff like that. And then there's, uh, you know, opinions and things that, uh, that, that, you know, that were a little too earnest at the, t- that, you know, that you've, you, when you look at where the world came and you look at, at, uh, at, at what you said, you realize, okay, it didn't, it didn't come out the way that you, that you would like it. You did, the world did not come out the way that you predicted or would have thought it would. Right. You know, I mean, it, it, the things have changed so, you know, so dramatically uh, in the world, particularly over the last 10 years. You know that when I when I read stuff from further back than that, it's like it's almost a dispatch from another planet. Wow! You know, do you find that your columns have the same impact in twenty twenty two as they did in nineteen ninety five? I have no idea. I mean, that, to me, that that I always said that's not for me to to uh, to to determine. It's that's for readers to determine whether or not it has the same impact. Um, I, and I don't mean you, you know, personally. I right. mean uh, the column form. The idea of the the daily columnist. Do you think people? Well, everybody these days, everybody fancies themselves a columnist or or a blogger or whatever, or you know, whatever. So I, I think some of that has some of that has diluted the form. I guess uh, this whole idea. You know, as I said a moment ago, every everybody has an opinion, but not everybody gets paid for it. Well, now maybe not everybody, but darn close, a lot closer than I than when I started in 1995, are getting paid for it or trying to get paid for it. Um, and you know you you combine that with this uh, sudden uh, no not sudden but this sort of uh, advancing ethos that that facts don't matter and that the truth is whatever you need it to be, and I think that you know it it becomes a lot harder for a column to break through for a column to have that kind of that kind of resonance uh, with folks uh, that it did. You know that said, I've had a few that you know the last few years that went viral and you know that was. 
surprising and pleasing, you know. But right. it, it, it's it's a different different form and a different world than it was when I started uh, writing columns in '94. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking of one that you wrote recently on gun violence, where you basically ask, "Why are you like this, America?" Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was sort of moderate response, I guess. I'm, 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 I haven't sat with a lot of the emails from that yet, but I think it was that that column was more of a moderate response. The column where I uh, talked about vaccinations and people, oh boy, yeah, that one was huge. <laughs> oh boy, that one was huge. You know that that column basically said, you know, don't let the doorknob hit you where the good Lord splits you. All the people who are quitting their jobs because they refuse to get vaccinated. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> you know, see ya. Uh, I'm curious because we are speaking. Uh, uh, well, this this uh, this will come out right before your very last column. Yes, sir. Out. And can you give us any kind of preview of what to expect in that? Oh, it's going to be a goodbye column. Okay, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a, a, a some people I have to thank, and maybe a you know last nugget of wisdom if I can come up with with, with something. It's but that column has basically been written in my head for about a year year and a half. Oh wow! Yeah, so. You knew who, what you wanted to say and who you wanted to say it to. Yeah, well, I, I kind of started crafting it, you know, and it's it's I've been polishing it and doing this, that, and the other, and you know, who who do I thank, and you know, all that all that good stuff. You know, the the column might be going away, but mm-hmm. I know that your voice is not going to be silenced. No. Uh, how are you going to express yourself? How are we going to get Leonard Pitts if not in our twice a week column in the Miami Herald and go to. Here's a pitch for Mitch Kaplan of Books and Books. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have him on pretty soon. No, go to, go to the bookstore. Um, you'll find my four novels, uh, Before I Forget, uh, Freeman, Grant Park, and The Last Thing You Surrender will all be there, and they'll be joined uh, in short order by the next col- the next uh, novels, because uh, that's the one thing that I'm uh, happy about in retiring is that uh, I'll be able to uh, to spend more time just churning out novels, which was always my first love anyway. I, I know that you're a, a big history buff, and yes. that plays into that kind of historical fiction, plays right. into your novel writing. Is that what you're most interested in kind of exploring yeah. now? Yeah, I love I love historical fiction, and, uh, you know, I, I always want to try my hand at it. So, you know, that's the, the, the last book, The Last Thing You Surrender, was a World War II novel. The next, the one I just finished the first draft on, the, um, the uh, working title is 54 Miles, and that takes up, uh, it's a sequel to Last Thing You Surrender, but it takes up 20 years later, and it's set during the uh, Selma campaign, the Selma voting rights campaign at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. So, you know, yeah, I, I, love, I love this idea of using history as a backdrop for telling human stories. Uh, you know, I, I think we do, history is so fascinating, and I think we do such a lousy job uh, in, in this country of teaching it. it. It's always about the names and, you know, when was the Smoot-Hawley tariff signed? You know, <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I don't. When was the Spanish Armada? I when don't the- know. I don't care. But it's fascinating to me to talk about the lives that people, that human beings lived you know, while all the great events and the generals and all this stuff and the presidents and the kings were doing whatever it is they were doing and the, the, the bills were being signed, I'm more fascinated by history that talks about how the people lived, you know, in those eras and in, and in those epochs. That, that's fascinating to me. So that's, you know, that's the kind of historical fiction that I, that I you know, enjoy reading and enjoy writing. Because there is a truth that yeah. can be found yeah. in, in writing great fiction. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've always felt that. I, I I've always said that we tell stories to figure out who we are. You know, it's the stories are how we explain ourselves to ourselves. 
you know, it's where we find the lessons in, 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 in what we've what we've gone through. So, you know, I, I, I love that. I, I think writing a column is the second best job that you can have uh, because basically, you you know, they, they give you money to write whatever you want to write. <laughs> You know, again, how is this legal? But the first best job is writing is is writing novels. You know, I mean, the the only thing better than what I've done for the last uh, thirty, almost thirty years, is what Stephen King has done. You know, and so I want to try my hand at that before, uh, you know, before the before the expiration date comes up. And now you get to do it. Yes, sir. Leonard, we wish you the best, and we can't wait to read uh, more from you. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Leonard Pitts, Jr. He's a nationally syndicated columnist, author, and one of America's foremost voices. He's retiring after three decades in the Miami Herald. His last column will be published tomorrow, December 14th. And that's Sundial for Tuesday, December 13th. Leslie Owaya Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor. Our senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundow's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. No show tomorrow due to the Miami-Dade County School Board meeting, but we'll be back Thursday, December 15th talking about a new book that hits close to me titled More Than What Happened, The Aftermath of Gun Violence in Miami. It's by locals who lost loved ones, survived shootings, and live with the daily gunfire in their neighborhoods. And I share the story of my father who was killed by a man with a gun. The editor of this anthology is Nadej Green, a local writer, historian, and a friend who will join me to talk it through. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Public Media.